Hi, and welcome to episode 17 of the Untethered Podcast. Again, joining us today is Diane Barr for the second half of our conversation. She is filled with so much knowledge, and I'm so grateful that she's joining us. Uh, Just a reminder that she is a speech-language pathologist and infant massage instructor, a visionary with a mission, and for almost 40 years, she's treated children and adults with feeding, motor speech, and mouth function problems. And while she's a speech-language pathologist by training, she has also honed her skills as a feeding therapist, published author, international speaker, university instructor, and business owner. She maintains a private practice, writes articles appearing in a variety of publications, and is interviewed frequently on radio and for magazines. Diane is the author of the textbook Oral Motor Assessment and Treatment, Ages and Stages, and two parent professional books, first one being Feed Your Baby and Toddler Right, Early Eating and Drinking Skills Encourage the Best Development, and the second one being Nobody Ever Told Me or My Mother That, Everything from Bottles and Breathing to Healthy Speech Development. Let's get back to where we left off. Quick disclaimer, all information, content, and material of this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and is for the informational purpose only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to the Untethered Podcast. I am your host, Hallie Balkin. I'm a certified orofacial myologist, feeding specialist, and mentor. This podcast is all about getting your questions answered and collaborating with colleagues to bring you the most up-to-date information in the orofacial myofunctional therapy, tethered oral tissue, and airway space. I challenge you to keep an open mind and join my mission to get this information out to the masses. Let's get started. Just for speech, for example, and then we'll go back to feeding. Two, for speech, a one-month-old should be making a short A like an A and a long E like an E. You know, not completely clear, but you should be hearing that in a one-month-old. By six months, and this is in every language because I've taught in Hong Kong. I have taught in Australia. I've taught in Ireland. I've taught in Finland. All over the world when you look at other languages, even Compla and Singapore complex languages like Mandarin, Chinese. What we know is children have their vowel basics by about six months. So last week I saw a nine month old who only had one vowel approximation. It was the ah, Mm. that's a one month level. (laughs) So if you take the checklist, don't drive yourselves crazy, but just look at your child. And if they're not, or if you're a therapist working, if they're not doing something, just facilitate it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the whole idea. It's not to say, oh, your child's off track. It's to say, oh, this is what they should be doing. Well, how can I get that? Yeah. And, and so that's why I put a lot of explanation in the books. And then with feeding, we uh, are not introducing, you asked about the different types of feeding. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used to introduce foods around <laughs> three months, <laughs> and now the American Academy of Pediatrics, and, and really, if you look at a three-month-old, uh, so if you take my course, uh, and if you see a three-month-old trying to eat from a spoon, it, they're just not ready, mm-hmm. okay? But the American Academy of Pediatrics still has on their website uh, in certain places between four and six months, we can start introducing things like baby cereals, mashed banana, mashed avocado. Uh, that's what my daughter's pediatrician. She had an excellent one. 
uh, happened to be Melanie Kotick's brother, but, <laughs> oh, <that's funny. laughs> but you know, uh, he was the one who really guided me to the American Academy of Pediatrics and what they were saying. And so there, we might be introducing some things in a westernized culture, uh, some tastes and things between four and six months. But if we don't have a westernized culture with a safe food supply, the World Health Organization, the WHO, is recommending that we don't start foods until six months. So a lot of us are doing that here in the U.S. or Australia. Australia is really ahead in a lot of their work that we're talking about here. So um, not that other countries aren't. A lot of them are. Um, we talked about Brazil. I mean, people in Europe are trying to learn as much as they can. People in China are hungry for this information. Uh, Japan, everybody is hungry for this. So if your child is not, you're not starting till six months, fine. But you can introduce, and I tell you exactly how to do it in both books. You can introduce spoon feeding, but do it properly mm -hmm. so that you get the correct movements. Baby led weaning can be part of this process. Uh, you're just not going to give your six month old a chicken leg. Uh, you know, and Joe Rapley, when I saw her research, she wasn't doing that either. She was giving safe foods mm -hmm. uh, for those first foods, like steamed broccoli tops, like uh, pineapple with the outside on it cut into wedges so the baby could hold it. Mm -hmm. um, and then if a little bit of the broccoli top breaks off, then they get it moving throughout the mouth. Um, and so... I have all of the spoon feeding, the cup, open cup drinking. Open cup drinking, by the way, is more we have research like breastfeeding, yes. which is why a lot of our preemies used to come home on open cups before mm -hmm. we had tubes. And I'm not against tubes because we want to keep our babies growing. Yes. But when I went to the Feeding Matters Conference, which is excellent, by the way, we were hearing that NG tubes, that's the one going in the nose, are... Uh, fortunately, only being placed for about, uh, I think the doctor said, eight weeks in his facility. Uh, and then, at the most, I think that's what he said. Yeah. And then uh, they're putting in the G-tube. Mm -hmm. They can't get where they need to go. And G-tubes are getting children growing. Uh, but you can't put in a G-tube, you know, one in their stomach or whatever, uh, without um, working on the oral mechanism at the same time. And that's also happening. I have a seven-year-old seven on my caseload and a 12-year-old on my caseload that that happened to. Uh -huh. And so, I mean, but they're doing fine. They both passed their swallowing studies. Oh, good. They're both developing oral skills. You know, but really it would have been better if they could have been kept on track as much as possible. Yeah, when they were younger. Even if they have the tube feeding. And the one I have, he actually had an NG tube for nine months. Mm. Um, so I, I don't know what I said before. You might have to go back and check this. Eight weeks. <laughs> yeah, I think you said eight weeks is the recommendation. Yeah, okay, eight weeks, yeah. not eight months. Okay, so that's what they were saying. Eight weeks is the recommendation, and then put the G-tube in. That's what this one doctor was saying, which is kind of a, a hospital that was on the forefront as I was mm -hmm. listening to him. Mm -hmm. um, but this child had an NG-tube for nine months, and then he couldn't lift his soft palate. Uh, so it was thought he was hypernasal, Turns out he couldn't get any air through his nose at all. He was hyponasal. Oh, wow. 
So, but we're getting intraoral pressure that he needs. We've gotten him nose breathing. Uh, but this is now a six or seven year old who's been in speech since six months of age. And, uh, you know, people did the best they could. That's also a not, not non-guilt comment because not everybody has had the luxury of what I've had. You know, I went from the public schools where we're, there were only 12 therapists and we got together monthly. So we helped each other out. And I love that. And we had, I had typical kids mm -hmm. <laughs> for the most part. I only had one child with dysarthria, which then piqued my interest in slurred speech and all that. Then I went to the Maryland School for the Blind, where I had the complete other end of the spectrum, children with all kinds of disabilities. And we had a feeding team that ran from September till November to develop the feeding programs for the children. And then of course we, depending if it was more of an oral issue than I was a representative, but we had education, we had residential, we had our doctors from Johns Hopkins, we had our dietitian from Johns Hopkins. Um, you know, ideal situation. And we had these very involved kids. Now we're getting these more subtly involved kids. So what I'm finding, I don't know if you're seeing it, is I now have children on my caseload who were originally identified as having autism, and now they're being re-identified as having cerebral palsy. Mm, oh, that's interesting. Um, cerebral palsy. Huh. So what's really interesting, three of them. Um, so what's really interesting about that is doctors, and you know, again, this is not, have, I'm not trying to, pull a heavy thing for pediatricians, but we, our pediatricians used to look at full body reflexes, oral reflexes. Now they look a little at that, but the reason they did that was to, to discover, and the reason they tracked it was to discover if a child has cerebral palsy. Well, Tanya and I presented for the American Academy of Cerebral Palsy and Developmental Medicine. I might have that rearranged somehow with the words, but they said, uh, this was a few years ago. There's more kids with cerebral palsy than ever. They're just milder. And so now we have these great birthing practices, but we have children that may actually have cerebral palsy that aren't identified. So one, one thing Tanya and I are doing is we're, what we hope to help the pediatricians with is to look at this again in a certain way uh, so that we, if we see a child not developing appropriate movement patterns in their body, that we look at those full body reflexes because they get integrated. Most of the full body reflexes are integrated at six months. So when you talk about a kid with hands like this, yeah. that moral response, yeah. that's a startle response. Mm -hmm. And the reason that helps when babies are sleeping on their backs is because say they lose control of their saliva or they have a reflux incident, they'll startle and it'll wake them up. Mm -hmm. but they also don't sleep as deeply. So in the future, we'll probably have ways of monitoring baby's oxygen that the baby can be placed in any variety of positions. I think that's coming. Hospitals, I hear I'm Nikki, <laughs> hospitals now have Bluetooth. Um, so for some of these things, so, you know, uh, we're, we're making progress and we just have to keep working at it. We want our pediatricians to be educated. P 
parents come in, they're very upset with their pediatricians because their pediatrician didn't tell them this or that. Well, it's not on the pediatrician's checklist. Right. Tell them this or that. Well, it's gotten better. So we're hoping to, Tanya and I are hoping to fill in some of those blanks. What I said to the editor at the American Academy of Pediatrics is, we, we don't want to tell your pediatricians what to, what to do. We want to walk beside your pediatricians and just fill in some of those blanks for them so that parents don't come back to us. And, you know, what I say is, please don't be angry with your pediatricians mm-hmm. because your pediatrician is your child's general doctor. And I say this in both books. So they in generally are looking at your child's health and your child's development but they don't have these kind of checklists unless they buy the book and use it, but they have so many kids to see. And um, we're looking at so much in a checkup yes. appointment. So that's why I always say we love our pediatricians, but we can't expect yes. them to know everything. Right. And, you know, cause I get a lot of parents say, well, why didn't my pediatrician tell me that? Well, because <laughs> this is not their specialty. I wouldn't expect them to tell you that. Can we educate pediatricians? Can we educate other pediatric specialists and right. help people understand like what to look for and give them checklists? One hundred percent. So I'm really, really excited about the work that you're doing. Thank that's, you. Thank you. I, that's why with this book, if I give it to a pediatrician, I give them the checklist with it because mm-hmm. they're not going to want to have. They they don't have time. Maybe their nurse practitioner does. Probably not either because they're busy too. Yeah. But, you know, uh, they don't have time to flip through this book. Yeah. So I have created a handout to go with this book when pediatricians have it that just have a checklist. So that, you know, and then, then they can go look at. That's so smart because then they're probably actually using it. So that's great. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We have to really understand where they are. Yes. Um, And none of this is anybody's fault. No. Uh, Our medical system is disjointed. Yeah. My husband just, and let me be sure that we covered all our points, but. My husband just, it looks like we did pretty much. Um, you, you wanted to talk about sippy cups, I see, and pacifier use, so we'll talk about that. But my husband just went to a hospital that he's been to before, and he's had great care, and this time he went, and the care was completely, completely disjointed. We had to ask three times for certain things. Everybody's on their own computer doing their own thing, and that team is just not like it was. So mm-hmm. that's why you and I are developing our own teams. Yeah. yeah. You have to, you've got to get out there and figure out, regardless of the setting that you're working in, right. you have to figure out who are those other specialists, who are those yeah. team members that yeah. you refer to because you know that they understand it from the same perspective that, you know, the, the airway, I would say an airway centric team yes. who yes. You know, that tends to pull together the type of holistic care that I'm looking for. We're so lucky and we're getting there. Um, so between Las Vegas and Los, An- Los Angeles, LA, uh, we have enough people that we can pull an airway centric team together as needed. Yeah. Well, and you're, so you're lucky too, because you're very close to like Zoggy and, you know, exactly. you know that's the big thing that we're missing out here. There is one ENT that I know a colleague refers to in Virginia and I want to um, reach out to him, but I know for my Maryland and DC families, I would love to find somebody a little bit closer. Yeah. You know, you don't go to the ENT every week. So Virginia is not super far fetched to send somebody to, but yeah. I know with busy families, sometimes they don't get the importance right away. And so right. we want to get them to that provider and, you know, location can be key. So, you know, if, 
if you're listening to this and you're an EMT yeah. in Maryland or Virginia, Maryland, yes, you reach out to me because we're looking for someone who's truly airway centric or who maybe isn't there yet, but wants to learn more about it and would be yes. willing to be part of a team approach so that we can yes. all, like, you know, I want to learn from that ENT as well. Same so, here. And we have good ENTs here. Yeah. One is that he's trained at my ENT. He's trained at Johns Hopkins. He's a cochlear implant specialist. The one I just went to with one, the one child that's hypo nasal, um, He's a swallowing specialist. He does fees. He does a beautiful job for young, for young children to get that scope in and do all of that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but uh, what, what we're hoping for is that more doctors like Dr. Zaghi will come and teach. And mm. in fact, he just sent me an ENT's child uh, so <laughs> to do pre uh, and post work with. So this ENT, that's not this person's area, but yeah. The doctor has said to me, we'll see what we can do to get mm -hmm. someone on our team to do this because mm -hmm. she's seeing it in her own children. Yeah. And I think that's what has to happen is they either need to see it firsthand or, you know, and they're, and I don't want to, I don't want to put my foot in my mouth. These ENTs are really great, but they are. as far as the airway centric side of things, it's not the training that they've had. This is, yes. a, it's a specialty and, yeah. <laughs> and not everybody is interested in learning new information or really realizing that this is not actually new information, but that it, right. it, it changes the way you practice and the way you look at things and not everybody likes to be told to do something differently. So we've been up against yeah. trying to find someone who is truly, and I, this is very personal for me because I've sure. got a almost four year old with size three tonsils that are constantly yep. in pain. She's constantly, she's not a mouth breather. She doesn't snore. Her speech sounds great or like her development yep. is great. She just went into her ALF. Uh, last week with our airway centric dentist. However, I was looking up her nostrils last night and kind of freaked out and sent one yeah. of my therapists and my dentist. I was like, can I send you guys some pictures? Like, what is it? I'm like, I know you can't see the adenoids through the nose, but what the heck are these huge masses that look? Yeah, it could be. If she has a high narrow palate, it could be just yeah. turbinate. turbinate. Yeah. So that's, I said, are these her turbinate? <laughs> like, what is this? Oh my gosh. I was like, how is she breathing out of her nose right well, now? That's, that's my problem. My turbinates are, one reason I moved to Las Vegas was the weather and the other was the airport. Mm. Uh, so originally I'm from Baltimore. You guys can probably tell by my accent. Uh, and so my turbinates are squished open mm. and I haven't had them shaved because that can cause some other problems. So that's why I want to get my palate spread, yeah. maybe my turban. So you're probably looking at her. Yeah. Turban. Well, that's why this is so personal <laughs> for me because I've taken her to ENTs that were like, I'm not going to touch her tongue tie. I'm not going to touch her tonsils. I'm not going to. And look, I don't want to put my child and she did have her tie released. No. No. But I don't want to put her through a tonsillectomy if it's not necessary. So, right. you know, as a mom and a therapist, I'm really hoping that her ALF will help to right. leave some of these right. airway issues. But if it's emergent, I want someone who's skilled yeah. to look at her and really know and be able to tell me, hey, right. yes, even though she has the ALF, I think the next step is X or no, yeah. we can wait and see what happens. It's you a know, process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but I don't, I don't like being just brushed off, you know, which I think... No. Well, you know, we, we are up against sometimes. To the point because I was taking Dave Singh's pictures with me, from uh -huh. a device to the ENT with me, so they could see what I'm talking about. Yeah. And my my ENT, I think, started to cringe when he saw me walk in because <laughs> I, I don't. I just because I'm 63 and I can. I go to doctor's appointments with my clients 
kind of as needed until we can get certain things started. Mm. So he'd seen those pictures before. So let's talk about delayed feeding. Yes. Tongue thrust is never normal. So red flag is tongue thrust mm -hmm. at any age. Yeah. Um, so uh, you'll read in the Hanson and Mason book just because they, you know, it's an older book and I love it. Yeah. Um, but you'll read that tongue thrust is normal up to a certain age. What, mm -hmm. what they seem to be confusing with tongue thrust is anterior tongue response uh, and also uh, suckle swallow, which is another reflex. Um, so you will see those things, but they're not real tongue thrusts. Yep. Tongue thrusts are usually hump bunch tongues that are helping to take up the space in the mouth. And we see it a lot in kids with Down syndrome. And one reason we think we see it a lot in kids with Down syndrome is when you thrust your tongue, you open your airway. <laughs> yeah, that may, and that makes sense based on what we know about their structures and why it's so important. Yeah. To them yeah. And that jaw protrusion too. Mm -hmm. Most of my kids who come in, they say they have an open bite. I mean, sorry, not an open bite. Well, that too. But that the open bite's usually from detrimental oral habit, thumb sucking, uh, blanky sucking, those kinds of things. But that... Uh, lower jaw protrusion, which is often called an underbite, uh, when you actually start to do real jaw work with them, which is very simple, uh, and get them chewing at the molar areas, you see the jaw often come into alignment. And so they're not stuck there. Now, if they become a teenager and adult and they, they're still opening their airway by jutting their, their jaw, then that's somebody that might be stuck there. And we may have things like trismus, for example. Um, as far as introducing solids, that is all written out in pre-feeding skills. It's written out in both of my books, uh, other people that have it. Mine is based on, again, longitudinal study of typically developing children, and I've added how to put baby-led baby weaning in there uh, safely. Awesome. Uh, there's been more research on that too. So in okay. the book, you've got more research on baby led weaning as well. And then why don't we like sippy cups? Because they hold the tongue down. So by 12 months of age, the tongue should be lifting to the alveolar ridge behind the, where the top front teeth should probably be. <laughs> right, 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 where they should be. <laughs> um, it, because that's a whole nother discussion, dental development. Mm -hmm. uh, and children who don't chew on things, don't do discriminative mouthing, their teeth tend to come in later. Um, so, and sometimes they'll come in an irregular sequence, which is why I have that information in my books. But by 12 months of age, we should see tongue tip rising to the alveolar ridge uh, on just about every texture. It's not gonna be a completely mature swallow, but we are, we, and we should see good tongue cupping um, to help form a bolus. So the bunching, humping, thrusting, never normal. And if you watch the jaw of a child with a sippy cup, you'll usually see front back jaw movement. Yeah. When we wanna see on the bottle and the breast, up down jaw movement. When we wanna see with chewing, up down jaw movement. Mm -hmm. There's a great book by Sandra Kahn. She is a pediatric orthodontist. And she and Simon Wong, who's in Australia, who is also a pediatric orthodontist, wrote something called the GOPEC system. They're trying to really simplify all this information for parents. Uh, we have an article on our site about it, 
but she also wrote a book with Paul Ehrlich through Stanford University Press called something like Jaws, The Hidden Epidemic. Uh -huh. We really need to, we have a phasic bite response for a reason. We need to be chewing on, you know, fleshy parts of fingers and that kind of thing beginning at birth in order to develop our jaws. If you look at Kevin Boyd's work, he's a dentist in Chicago, pediatric, and, and you look, he's also, I call him an anthropologist. I don't know. We have, a, we have also a lead into one of his lectures on our site. If you look at his work, when they dug up skulls of babies years ago, babies weren't born with a retreated lower jaw. Um, so this is, again, we think an epigenetic change. We think missing sucking pads, epigenetic change. So we have to come. It's, so if they're missing sucking pads, you do carefully apply cheek support, not squeezing. Or you find a way for gravity to help you with that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. The sippy cups hold the tongue down. The wow cup, the 360 cup, a lot of people are using because it looks really good. I, it looks yeah, like I, an open cup, right? That's what people yeah, think, yeah, but it's not quite yeah, functioning. Yeah. And there may be cases as a feeding therapist that you may use it. I know Melanie uses it. Melanie Potic uses it in certain cases, she tells us. Um, so that really should be something that a feeding therapist can help you do. Mm -hmm. um, but my experience is that we had a party where we all had wow cups. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually tried it. I have them here. So I tried to drink out of it and I went, yeah. oh. Well, it takes a lot of backward force, yeah. which we already have structures that are back there because gravity, especially if you're spending an inordinate amount of time on your back or in containers, gravity's been pulling those structures back. Mm -hmm. So we need something that's more balanced. So that's why open cup or re recessed lid cup, yeah. uh, the infotrainer, all those kinds of things, very, you know, important. Straws need to be introduced properly. And if you have a child with a tongue thrust, Sarah Johnson has a good straw program that's a lot of fun, but those straws can't always go to school. Um, although, uh, ARC has a straw, they're called lip blocks, that go mm -hmm. from longer to shorter. So if you have somebody who's using the tongue under the straw, you can go from longer to shorter and just get the straw on the lips. But my six-month-old kids, I use my honey bear. I put thickened liquid in it. My favorite thickened liquid is a stage one baby food thinned with water. <laughs> and we just place just that on the lips, and we may give a little carefully applied cheek support and teach the child just to drink from the straw with the lips from the beginning. Yeah. Same with the spoon. We use a maroon spoon that has, it's a fairly flat bowl. It has a perfect tongue cup. We put it straight in. We let the lips and mouth close. We move, remove the spoon level. Um, open cup, we place it on the bottom lip. We want the inner borders of the lips working with this. But in a typical child, uh, up to 18 months, that child may, if it's a, a flexible cup, uh, like you know one they can bite on without cracking, they might still bite to stabilize, but we'd rather have them bite to stabilize and use their lips to draw the liquid in. Mm -hmm. And we would want them to, and the same with straws, like Sarah Johnson's number two straw is a nice sturdy straw. So when I get a child who needs to bite on the straw to learn straw drinking, I'll often start with that one. Also, the ARC lip locks, they're sturdy too, so a child can bite on them learn to use the lips, 
and then we get shorter and shorter. If you get to the lips with a straw with somebody and they're still biting on it, I mean, their, their tongue is still under it, we'll feel a little tongue come out. <laughs> then we need to go do jaw work. Yeah. That means the jaw isn't grating enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there's a lot of jaw grating that goes into speech and into feeding. Yes. However, this is where the big controversy came in. Oh, and, yes. <laughs> and we, we have it straight now. We do. Eating, drinking, speaking. They use the same muscles. But if you look at Christopher Moore's research and his colleagues, there's very little crossover between feeding and speech. It's like reduplicative babbling and chewing or something but this is very young under the age of two when that happens and so in order to get eating drinking and speaking you need to work on eating drinking and speaking (laughs) I love that you said that because obviously like you said it involves all the same muscles however it's very different what you're depending on what you're working on and what the need for that child is and not every child that comes to see you for one thing needs the other some kids just come to me for eating and others right for speech but I will tell you that sometimes when I take a global look at what's going on we actually end up needing to work on both even though only one was the reason they were brought into my office. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and the IOP really shows us this, even though a lot of people may not be able to afford it. But we had them at Loyola from the time Don Robin brought them around. (laughs) So we had them from the 90s at Loyola. So I have one now. I was finally able to save up and afford it. Um, But really, I'm doing things with, uh, I was just on with Tara Hart, who, um, is the IOB CEO or something like that. But she's Eric Lushai's daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, who's the guy that helped develop this along with Don Robin. And Joanne Robbins uh, has done great swallowing work with the IOB. But I don't have people that can follow directions. Mm-hmm. But I ha- do have people where I've taught them to say like the N sound, the E sound, and the NG sound. And what's really interesting is when you place this ball along the tongue so you say you get an n and n in the front uh you'll see that speech is a very light touch act mm-hmm. uh, when you put it in the middle of the tongue and you have e it helps the tongue cup around you know which is where which is needed to say e your tongue cups uh, and you'll see it's a light touch act if you put it in the back i often have them say ing uh, for that you'll see it's a light touch act now this is not approved by IOB to do, but <laughs> they're right now just looking at tongue pressure. But if you look at tongue pressure for swallowing, for example, that is approved for IOB, with IOB. Or you look at lip and cheek pressure, you'll see a whole different story. You'll see higher numbers. Mm. So there are higher pressures used in swallowing than used in speech. Okay. And I have another idea, but I'm not going to tell you what that is because <laughs> hasn't approved it. But I can also show that there are more things. And that's why I just got an, uh, a palatometer, the smart palate, which I'm going to be working with. Because one way we discovered in a 22-year-old that he had a tongue tie was with the smart palate, he could not get a good resting tongue position in the top of his mouth. And then when we explored under his tongue, we found it was very tight. Mm-hmm. And so um, this is the future of speech pathology. Not everybody can afford this. I'm, you know, I'm, work- I'm working to be able to afford these things. <laughs> 
I think I think they're very cool, and I've I've heard mixed things, you know, about um, the smart palette, and I just wonder if it's because one people weren't using it in not not in the proper way, but they weren't using it in the same ways that you're going to be using it. So I'll be really curious to hear about what your findings yeah. are once you start getting this into practice more, and what your you know what your uh, pros and cons are about it. And, you know, I'm always, I'm always following what's the latest research, but also what's out there that we can use to help our patients get in and out of therapy faster and help us learn quicker about what's going on intraorally. So we have to tailor our plan, our our treatment plan to them. Um, yeah, Carol Duran, who's an OT who used to teach for us years ago, (laughs) she called this the black hole. And Sam, Sam Fletcher, who, did the research with palatometry and then developed complete, I mean, yeah, complete speech, smart palate, um, along with Andy, I think he was the engineer. Um, Sam saw all the uses. It's some people who carried it forward that weren't really trained in like feeding to see the mm. use. But when I sat down, Sam just passed away too. Um, in like December, he was 90. It's a sad, thing to lose him but he is the one that told me he's fashioned a smart palate for a nine-month-old and he could look at what they were doing in terms of swallowing and (laughs) tongue tip so if at 12 months Suzanne Morris and her longitudinal study has observed tongue tip coming to the alveolar ridge to initiate the swallow and when I talked to the guy Christian at Smart Palette before I uh, ordered it, um, I made him very well aware that oral facial myology uh, is is a place this will have a home uh, because we have oral facial myofunctional therapists who are speech language pathologists like me. Um, although I'm not a COM, I tend to be more of a feeding therapist, a motor speech therapist, that kind of thing. Um, And I tend to work with people before they're ready for the regular certified oral facial myology work. But the thing is, this is going to give us so much more information. Yeah. What we had before. And as as long as you clean it properly, um, you definitely, the person that, you know, worked with me on getting it, um, you definitely can put water in there. Hmm. And you definitely can do dry swallows. Um, And you can see if you can get tongue up to the palate. Love it. So we, you know. Exciting. So the controversy was painful. Yeah. Uh, Pam and I wrote a lot about it, and she's passed on too. But, you know, it helped us really uh, look at things very discreetly. So now we're, we're in a much better place with what we're doing. Well, I love it. And I mean, I think we've talked about so many topics as they relate to speech and tongue ties. And now we've branched off in a few places and I know we could chat all day and I'm so thankful for you being on the podcast. And, you know, every time I hear you speak, I'm like, I've taken your courses on your website. I've seen you in person. I have both your books. I've read them as a new mom. I've read them twice. I've I've gone back to them when I'm like working with clients because, you know, as many times or as much information as you know, I'm just, I'm a constant learner. And sometimes I just, I need a refresh with some of my cases. 
Yeah. And so, I mean, I was sitting here even jotting down notes for some of my patients when you were talking. I was like, oh, right. Like, let me write that down. So I know people are going to get, get so, so much value out of this. Um, and we, we chatted for a while, so we'll probably yes. see this into two episodes. Yeah, so, sure. Is there anything else that you want to No, add? it's just that I mentor people. Um, treatment can't cross state lines, but certainly there's therapists like you and me. I get a second set of eyes, too. I just sent somebody, sent uh, information to Leach Pesquet, uh, even though she's not in practice, she's retired. Um, but I needed a second look at something. Um, you know, I've sent to Sonda uh, Pinkerton, uh, Suzanne Morris, certainly, I've sent with care permission for se second looks. Mm -hmm. uh, because we're not on teams of 40, we don't have those other eyes. Right. And so it doesn't matter who you are or what your experience is. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is, so my list was starting to come out. See, when they pulled those teeth back, I ended up ah. with a list. Ah. I remember uh, you mentioning that I at the court. I have to really control that. Yeah, see all these compensations you have Because <laughs> <laughs> that's really detrimental for a uh, speech-language pathologist. Right? <laughs> but anyway, what I learned, I, in 1989, Suzanne Wason and I taught our first course at Loyola. It was a continuing ed course. And... Um, then later on, Lori Sova and I taught uh, in the graduate program at Loyola a swallowing and feeding course um, and, and oral sensory motor mouth development course. So what I learned back then is I started taking, because I was a terrible teacher. And so You're I a fantastic teacher now. <laughs> I just wasn't prepared for this. Oh. And so what I did was I went and took courses in teaching adults. Oh. And and that helped me a lot because the thing is that um, the typical adult has to see and hear and experience things a number of times before they integrate it. And it's the same with me. You know, I see something that somebody else is doing and I go, I forgot that. <laughs> like like uh, Lori Overland and Sarah Johnson taught me the half straw technique. Mm -hmm. uh, which I don't know, Lori and I have been talking, like, what are we going to do once we uh, lose? I know, with the straws, yeah. But I did bring some, home some paper straws, so I'm going to see if we can use them without the kids swallowing paper or yeah. me swallowing paper. But, you know, when Lori and Robin wrote their feeding book, I said to Lori, you know you taught me this great cash straw technique. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes we just, and then they put it in, I'm pretty sure. But, uh, you know, I, I use it all the time. And so I, uh, the reason I've taken so many people's courses and still do is because I'm still picking up. Yeah. And I love that about you. That's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. And when, when you teach in a graduate school, that's your job. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you have to know what's, what's out there and what... And you know what, and who knows what other people have come up with based on research and experience, clinical experience, and there's just, it's constantly changing, and I know we're all trying to do better for our patients, yep. so I love that about you. I think that's amazing. I love that about you, and so yeah. many of our other colleagues, we're now getting graduate students contacting us, and we're getting uh, professors contacting us, because now what we're saying is is really making sense to them because we know why we're doing what we're doing. And the article by Ray Kent, if you're an ASHA member, you, it's quite a few pages, but it explains everything when it comes to oral exercise and where that fits. 
Um, the thing about Sarah Johnson, she got hit pretty hard by the controversy. She and I wrote an article for Communication Disorders Quarterly because people really didn't understand her work. Mm-hmm. And you're talking, just so that listeners understand, you're talking about non-speech oral motor exercises. Yeah, but you know what I like that Ray did? He, mm-hmm. he calls it non-speech oral facial movement. And he mm-hmm. puts it all in perspective. Mm-hmm. And he has charts in there that help you move from one level to another. Mm-hmm. And what I understood by writing an article with Sarah, uh, and I'm, I, you know, yes, I teach for talk tools, but I teach for talk tools. They just picked me up because I asked to be picked up because I needed somebody to pick me up <laughs> you know, when I stopped my own workshop business. But I've taught for education resources, I've taught for motivations, you know. Um, and what's really nice about teaching for talk tools is they don't mind me talking about all these other yes. things. Yes. And so, because, because I see where their work fits in, but the difference between Sarah Johnson and me and some of the more recent training, we were trained when there was a lot of behavior modification and we were trained to task analyze everything we did. And the problem with the oral controversy, and PAM too. Uh, so the oral problem with the oral sensory motor controversy is that therapists that didn't have that background couldn't see where to start. And so that's what we explain, and that's what Ray explains in here. Look, if you can get feeding, you're going to just go for feeding. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> if you're going to get speech, you're going to go for speech. If you see there's a jaw problem, I have a new speech program I'm planning on publishing, uh, but I'll probably do a webinar on it first. But I use bite blocks and jaw closure tubes to get mm-hmm. the vowels because yeah. they're the ones that need the graded jaw heights. Um, and that's in my courses as well. So, you know, I mean, we're learning what we can do with these things to get function. And of course, you're not going to have somebody, but Michael Carreri in his apraxia book years ago talked about bite blocks there's an article that's just a research article that just came out about bite blocks and ray puts it all together in this article 2015 and he's just done some recent research that's just beautiful like on vowels and mouth development because uh he has a lab um where he is he's professor emeritus i guess from uh madison wisconsin uh, he's a wonderful guy, and he's helped me, you know, if I'm going to say who has mentored me, Suzanne Mar, a lot of people, Suzanne Wayson at the School for the Blind, Suzanne Morris, um, who I started studying with in the 80s, uh, Christian Gimeno, uh, Ray Kent, uh, and, and so many, please don't think if I didn't mention your name, you haven't mentored me, because so many of my colleagues have mentored me along the way as well, and so, because when Sarah came to town, uh, the people at Loyola were really excited because we just didn't have any like sequence. Yeah, to yeah. Put, to put things in. <laughs> but anyway, the article is called "Non-Speech Oral Movements and Oral Motor Disorders: A Narrative Review." It goes into the muscles, the muscle spindles. My my original book, Oral Motor. I wish I'd called it Oral Sensory Motor Assessment and Treatment because it really is sensory motor. But this is no, it just went out of print. But if you want like the muscle charts from it, I think now I can give them. <laughs> that is out of print, yeah. 
So you can ask me for those and I'll send them to you. Um, and then we'll go, I talked to Heather Clark years ago about maybe us writing a new version of that, but it's, it's just so much work and we're both really busy and we have so many other projects, but she's another one who, you know, I've turned to, to ask for opinions because, you know, we need that combination of academician and clinician. Mm -hmm. And now Asha has uh, Kathy Scaler Scott. Um, I'm trying to think. Her name was Nina. It wasn't Nina Johansson. Sorry, Nina. I can't remember your last name from California. Uh, and I, uh, we talked about research and what was needed in mm -hmm. 2009 uh, at Asha. And uh, Asha has now taken those ideas forward, whether it's from us or for us and a bunch of other people. You know, great minds often think alike. Um, I'm not calling my mind great. I'm just oh, saying. Oh, your mind is fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know. Downplay uh, that mind. I don't know how uh, you remember all these things. <laughs> well, a lot of times people come up with the same thing. And I was very humbled when I first studied with Suzanne Morris because people all over the world, I thought I was a real hotshot feeding therapist. And all these people from all over the world were doing the same things. <laughs> so there went that hotshot feeding therapist out the window. But, you know, uh, whoever... Uh, Ash is really now looking at putting those teams together. It's hard. The research yeah. world is hard in the U.S. because of money. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah, time and money. It's always time yeah. and money. <laughs> Which is why we go back to some of the great research, Jim Bosma, um, and his work was he used instrumentation. There's nothing wrong with that research just because it was, it's older. Right? <laughs> no, no. Beautiful. Beautiful. I love it. Well, this is, I mean, this has been so, so informational, Diane. I am so thank you for having me. Of course, I'm so thankful for you and your time. And, you know, we used a lot of really great references. I was trying to jot down some of the names that we were talking about and other resources so we can put those in the show yeah. notes for people because I think yeah. this is such a great list of, you know, a lot of people come to me and they go, where do I start? Well, first of all, go to yeah. Diane's website, which is agesandstages.net. Right. Um, Thank, we'll you. That <laughs> Thank you for showing me out on that. <laughs> yeah, you, you go there first because like you said, you've got the free course that they email you for it. You've got your two yeah. books. You've got other courses from the, you know. Yes, I have other free courses. One I did for current course with talk tools. Yeah. Like there's a lot of ways that people can access what you're yes. teaching. And um, if they ask me, you know, and people will tell you, I can't believe she gets back to me. If I can't <laughs> get back right away, which is sometimes the case, I just say, I'll get back to you soon. Yeah, you're wonderful. <laughs> I got the email. Yeah, uh, but that's how I do my volunteer work. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like, and, and I love what I do. Yes. So why would I quit? <laughs> exactly. Well, you're so good at it. So we hope you stick around as long as you want to stick you. around. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, we All can right. talk forever. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Diane. Have a sure. fabulous night. Thanks, Hallie, for doing this. Take care. You too. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you want to hear more of these Mayo Tots airway and feeding related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash the untethered podcast. If you found value, others you know in this space will too. So be sure to share this episode on your social media platforms and join us over on Facebook, on my Facebook page at Hallie Balkan Biz, on Instagram at, at Hallie Balkan. And you can head over to untetheredpodcast.com to grab a copy of the show notes where you can 
also subscribe to keep kept up to date on the latest podcast episodes. Big shout out to Dana McKay, podcaster extraordinaire, for editing and helping me keep this podcast alive.